everybody, and welcome back to the Bible Breakdown. Excited to be here with you today, this week. We are transitioning from talking about Saul, the initially awesome-seeming king, who goofed and goofed it up. And we are transitioning from Saul to David, the initially underwhelming king, who becomes a pretty good king, a really good king. No, he becomes the paragon of all kings who would follow after. Literally every king is pretty much compared to David after this. So David is, uh, if you remember from times we've talked about it before, David makes my list of top three most important Old Testament humans along with, I'll give you a second so you can guess in your mind the two others. Yeah, good. Okay, you, you've got it now. It's obviously Abraham and Moses, David being the third, chronologically especially. And those are kind of the, the top three. If you want to understand the Old Testament, you have to understand those these three people. David is one of them. So not to say there's not a lot of other important people, because there are, but these by far stand out the most and are going to influence greatly to what we see in the New Testament and Jesus' ministry the most. So David's stories, um, the wonderful thing about David is we see so much of his life and we can learn so many lessons from his life that God teaches through the scripture, um, which is a great thing that we get to uh, enjoy um, both his, his highs and his lows. We get to learn a lot from. Uh, we also know it's from his line that Joseph... Mary's husband, Mary, Virgin Mary's husband, mother of Jesus, will be from, okay? So Jesus is going to trace his lineage, human-wise, back to David, okay? And he is going to fulfill the covenant that God's going to make with David. So I know I feel like I gave you just a lot of future stuff about what David's up to, but I guess I'm just trying to make the point that he's very important, okay? So this is the introduction to getting to know David. So his first story about David is really an illustration of God's character, not like the other ones aren't, but really what we're going to kind of focus in on here is God's character in choosing David over Saul. That's really kind of what the point of this story is. So we see what God values, and that helps us know what to value and what to emulate. And so that's why we're here. So we are in 1 Samuel still. We are in chapter 16, and I'll start in verses 1 and 2. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Okay, so last week we looked at, well, actually we looked at the story of Sodom last week. The week before that, we looked at how Saul had failed in his calling as king of Israel. He was making uh, sacrifices out of impatience and presumption. Uh, those were the responsibility of Samuel. He disobeyed God's commands directly. He made unnecessary vows that uh, got his son in trouble. And he tried to have his son killed for breaking this unnecessary vow. He denied the times that he disobeyed God. And God had disqualified Saul from being king. He had told Saul he would it would not be his line that would continue to be king over Israel. 
So the Lord tells Samuel, because we see at the end of chapter 15, Samuel's pretty broken up about this, not because he really like loved Saul necessarily, but just I think he was probably upset by the fact that the start of the Israelite monarchy had really failed and that it was totally like, what, what are we going to do now? So I think he was probably upset about that. But God tells him, all right, Samuel, time to stop grieving over Saul. He was not awesome. I've got something for you to do. He tells Samuel to fill his horn with oil and go. There's actually a, a broadcaster on ESPN named Steve Berthume. Um, and when he would broadcast, when he was doing like highlights and he would call a, a home run, he would say, fill thine horn with oil. And then right when the player would hit the, the home run and the ball would be launched toward the stands, he would say, and go. Because I read that and I was like, why does that sound like so familiar for something that's really not a super important statement? But then I remembered, oh, it's from all those times I was watching SportsCenter. Shout out to Nan and Gran who watched Sports Center with me all the time when I was a kid. Thanks, Nate and Gran. Anyways, he used to say that when he did home run highlights. But Samuel actually fills his horn with oil. Um, it will be many, many centuries before baseball is invented. And, of course, we know that the reason he is taking some oil with him is he must be anointing someone as king, because that's what they did. So Samuel, though, is worried that Saul's going to find out through the gossip web of Israel that he's out of place with a horn of oil. Okay. So you can imagine, I, it, it, this kind of makes it seem like Samuel usually kept to certain regions and like for him to be somewhere else was a like special occasion. And so maybe that is the case. Um, but he was definitely worried that he was going to get caught and, you know, carrying around a horn of oil, like really only means one thing. It's not like he was going to saute some veggies or something like that. So it probably would have gotten back to Saul what Samuel was up to, especially in light of the announcement that had been made that he was no longer going to be king. And so he's probably worried that, well, actually I say probably, he was definitely worried that Saul was going to kill him because it says right there in verse two. So God tells him, well, okay, we, when you go, like take a cow with you, let's make a sacrifice while we do it. Invite Jesse and his sons to it. So that's what he does. So he gets to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And in verse six, it says this, when they came, he looked on Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That may be a verse that you are familiar with. Um, Samuel sees the first of the sons of Jesse, Eliab, and he says, man, this guy's looking nice and kingly, which uh, it's a shame that even Samuel, I guess, is bought into this thing. Like whoever's going to be king is going to look like a king or they're really interested in people's height as a relatively tall person. I mean, I'm flattered, but at the same time, I think most of us recognize that you could be a good leader at really any height. So, uh, but this is what the people thought of Saul. This is a thing. Okay, I guess the idea of height uh, would present strength and that makes you think, okay, this king can protect me, whatever it may be. But even Samuel is tempted that way because he sees Eliab and he says, okay, this guy is tall. He's going to be, he's got to be the one. But we get in a clear look here into what God values in a leader. God is looking at the state of a person's heart. Okay, so this Hebrew word for heart that most often uh, is used for heart. The word here is actually lavav, which is a little different, um, but its root is the word, the Hebrew word lave. 
And it refers to the inner self, the seat of feelings, and emotions. And then often there's like a volitional aspect. There's actually quite a bit of overlap of how we use heart in English as in Hebrew. Especially when we're talking like in a church context, there's actually quite a bit of similarity. So that's good. That's not a huge gap that we have to cover. Um, when we say God looks at the heart, we're like, oh yeah, like who you truly are, not who you are on the outside. That's exactly what we're looking for here with the Hebrew word lave. So God sees something in the heart of the one he is calling to be king that makes him fit for leadership on his own. No, of course not through God's guidance. So I think what we're going to see and something we're going to see uh, about David is that a heart that is fit for leadership is one that is submitting itself to God's guidance. Not there's there's a, maybe some natural giftedness, um, maybe some spiritual giftedness, uh, especially for us in the church age with the Holy Spirit for leadership. But ultimately, a heart that is ready to submit itself to the Lord is got to be the first step if you want to be a leader. So height, age, attractiveness, not important, not important for being a leader. So all of Jesse's sons pass by, but none of them are chosen. Seven, including, I assume, including Eliab there, seven sons pass before Samuel. And he says, uh, sorry, it's actually none of, none of these. I know I invited y'all here for something important. I know I'm kind of putting you through this, but none of them are the ones. Samuel, I'm sure, must be quite perplexed by this. Like, okay. So you sent me to this family and you said that one of his sons was going to be king and here are all the sons and all of them passed before me and none of them were the one. So Samuel goes Sherlock on uh, Jesse in verse 11. He says, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send him or send and get him for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Okay, so Samuel does some sleuthing. He says, just check in. Are there any other sons? Sure enough. Jesse's like, oh, yeah, there's this other one. Like, uh, he's young and he's out tending the sheep. All right. Alarm bells. David is a shepherd. Anytime we see shepherd in scripture, we need to go ahead and just have a little alarm that goes off and let me think, okay, is this, is there significance then in this? Shepherds have huge significance in scripture. Okay. I I know I talked about it in a, a podcast before, but Jesus, of course, refers to himself as the good shepherd. That's good enough to make it seem significant. The word for pastor is actually rooted in the word for shepherd. Okay. And many of the patriarchs, Abraham and Moses included, were shepherds. Okay. So there is a significance to shepherds in scripture. So anytime we see that a person is a shepherd, we take notice. And in fact, Saul was a shepherd. And if you remember, he was real bad at it. We talked about that in the first one about Saul. Like this was maybe a little bit of a foreshadowing of what kind of king he would be. Sure enough. Okay, second, this is another example of the cultural right of primogeniture, fun big word thrown all together, 
which and the, that cultural right was that the oldest was favored and it's turned on its head here. Okay, so the right of primogeniture in that culture kind of turned on its head because that's not how God's looking at things. Remember, God is looking at the heart. He is not looking at who's the oldest or the tallest or the most handsome, even though it says David was handsome. That's more of a, a more like a bonus. Okay, so it's fairly common in scripture, actually. We have, there's quite a few examples up to this point um, of the firstborn not getting this cultural, culturally based favor. Okay, so one would be Seth, of course, because Cain killed Abel and then Cain was exiled. So there was Seth. Um, Isaac, if you recall, uh, Ishmael was actually his older brother um, through Hagar. Jacob over Esau, usually being the most uh, most well-known example of this specifically. Uh, Joseph over all of his brothers. He was the youngest until Benjamin was born. So this, again, this goes to the point, and what we're seeing here illustrated is that God looks at the heart. He's not looking at some external or cultural or human value to select leaders. God is looking at the heart. So it turns out that this youngest, uh, this youngest guy he probably smells like sheep, and sweat, and dirt, and he's the one, and Samuel anoints him. Okay, so take a note here. This is this is very important in the life of David. Like with Saul, this anointing didn't mean he was immediately king, so he didn't anoint him and then give him his crown and his robe and tell him, go head over to the throne, okay? We're going to find out in spades how the life of David is a lot about waiting, being this king and waiting, and that's actually a a huge, huge part of David's life. So he's not immediately going over to uh, take take the throne. All right, he's being anointed. Uh, that means God has chosen him. But as we're going to see, it's not going to be his time to actually begin ruling. Okay, so he is anointed there, and um, it's kind of a it's kind of a secret, also, um, because remember Samuel kind of went there and didn't want to get noticed. So moving down into verse fourteen. We get a look of what Saul is doing now. It says, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Who do you think that servant was talking about? Well, it just says young man. Who do you think he was talking about? That's right. It was good old David. All right, so... Part of the consequence, though, for Saul's disobedience is not only was the spirit of the Lord no longer with him. Remember it. And we actually see quite a uh, contrast here because the in verse 13, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. OK, so there's this um, there's this uh, continuity with the spirit being with David where, again, most of what we see in the Old Testament up to this point is the Spirit rushing upon people for a time, okay? And then here with Saul, um, we see that the Spirit was with him, and then the Spirit departed from him, okay? And that is not our case anymore. Our case is that we are 
uh, sealed by the Holy Spirit when we believe in Jesus. So through Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit, not just as a uh, as uh, the Spirit rushing upon us, but instead being with us and dwelling within us. So one of the blessings of the new covenant. But we see here that not, so the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, but in addition to that, the Lord allows a harmful spirit to torment him. And this is one of the consequences of Saul's disobedience. We don't really get any specifics of what this was, and I care not to speculate. Um, we're going to see Saul act in some erratic ways um, as time goes on. At, at this point, we, we don't have a clear idea of what exactly is happening to Saul when this harmful spirit torments him. One way or the other, we know that this, this consequence is being experienced because of something that is from God. So this is part of the consequences God is punishing Saul with. That's what the scripture is clear about, is that this is something the Lord allowed in order uh, as a consequence for Saul. Um, but apparently the lyre slash harp slash zither, which is not really a word I knew, but that's actually what the uh, Old Testament lexicon says for this word. I'm going to stick with harp because it's the most classic. I'll stick with that one. When somebody played the harp, it made Saul feel better when he went into whatever these fits of torment were. So they are like, hey, Saul, we better bring someone in uh, who can play. And he's like, all right, get someone good. And sure enough, the anointed King David Saul doesn't most likely at this time. I'm not going to say 100% he doesn't know. I'd say it's very unlikely that he knows uh, that David has been anointed. So anointed King David's going to come and play the harp for Saul. You can see, though, already this young man speaking so highly of David already, even though you know, his dad didn't even remember him when he invited all his sons to meet Samuel. Uh, but apparently he's got this reputation, um, not just for being good at playing the harp, but also for being a man of valor, a man of war. So a skilled warrior is probably what that would mean. Uh, prudent in speech. So he's got a well-tamed tongue and a man of good presence. I would guess that kind of means he's kind of maybe charismatic. Um, and then finally, the Lord's with him. That's, that's, a, pretty good, that's a pretty good set. Okay, especially with the last one, the other ones, whatever, but that last one, that'll do. So Saul uh, brings in David, and in fact, uh, he is very he's very happy with the job that David does um, in playing the harp, and it says Saul loved him greatly down in verse 21, and he made him his armor bearer, which was a position of great honor. Uh, he enlists him into his service. He basically tells Jesse, uh, he's not coming back. Uh, I need him to. I need him to stay here. And so, anytime Saul had these fits or these issues um, with the spirit that was tormenting him, David would play the harp, and he would feel better. Okay, which I think is probably largely to illustrate to us how the Lord was with David, because I can't imagine that there was actually some physical ailment that was cured by the playing of the harp. But when David played it, Saul felt better, and that I think is probably an illustration of how the Lord was with David. So their relationship starts out quite incredibly, actually. It starts out really great. He loved David. He cared so much for him. Uh, David served him, and uh, he gave him positions of honor. Um, unfortunately, it's not going to stay that way, but that's how it starts out. So that's kind of the story of when David is anointed, and as Saul is moving toward leaving the throne, though 
as is clear here from this passage, he is still on the throne. David is more like a king in waiting. Most likely Saul does not know. So as we look to then apply uh, this passage, uh, again, we get to see a lot here. We get to see some about the character of David and what uh, is good about him. But really that points us to the fact that God, his character, is that he desires a righteousness that goes to the core of who we are, not something external, not something cultural, not something based on our appearance or our height or our birth order, but instead God looks to the heart. Okay, our righteousness and obedience, true righteousness and obedience, is a matter of the heart, not of our outward appearance. Okay, so yes, there's uh, there's there's looks. Okay, you could say that, you know, it's been well studied that people will tend to treat people that they that are good looking more kindly than people that they don't think are good looking. So that's part of it, a very like a very literal like outward appearance. But then also think about things like charm or people skills. That's also something more of an an outward appearance, something that people if, and I think about that in our culture that people would look for in a leader is someone who's charming, someone who has good people skills, somebody who speaks or acts in an admirable way or a way that from the perspective of how we see them is admirable, okay? But here's the thing, you can be righteous and obedient with people never really thinking of you in that way. So you could be righteous and obedient and nobody ever think that you are particularly, but the opposite is also true. You can be very unrighteous and disobedient without people ever really thinking of you in that way. I think about when Jesus talks about giving and when he talks about prayer, okay? He talks about doing it in secret because those are things that are meant to be done for him, not for our image. So he compares it to people who pray openly in the synagogues. I think about the um, parable of the Pharisee in the center and the Pharisees out there praying like, oh, thank goodness I'm not like this guy over here, this sinner. I'm so awesome. And Jesus is speaking against that because again, that's a, a heart of pride, not of humility before the Lord. But B, it's for everyone to hear. It's not the content of his heart. Whereas the sinner beats his chest and says, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. And he does it in secret where nobody will see him. He talks about people who would give and that, that you know, it clangs the, uh, the pot as it goes in. But rather, he gives honor to the, the woman who gives her the very last pennies that she had. And that is what he's looking for as righteousness, okay? And here's the thing. It's not, these things aren't supposed to be done for our image, but the American church has a problem with image. We have a big problem with image. Many of our actions lead to the conclusion that we would rather be known as righteous than to actually be righteous. That's what a lot of our actions say. Okay, so visionary, powerful, dominant, well-spoken leaders tend to gain recognition. Um, I think we're more prone to hide our sin instead of confess our sin in humility. Uh, the temptation to uh, post about all the good things we're saying or doing or thinking, those things kind of lead, lead to the conclusion that we may actually be more concerned with how things look than the content of our own hearts or the hearts of 
those who are in leadership. I think the American church has struggled mightily with that. And I think a lot of those things have kind of come to light over the last uh, several years recently in many, many, unfortunately, many church scandals um, in many different areas, many different denominations that it looked good. It looked good. It looked good. And behind the scenes, like it was just dark and it was dirty and it was sinful but on the outside, it looks good. And so sometimes we we have a tendency to want to perpetuate and protect those things that look really good or seem really good on the outside. What we have to know from this story of David is that is not what we're looking for. Again, even though he had some qualities that maybe we would even look for. It says he's, yeah, he's got good presence. He's, uh, he's handsome. Uh, he's got some skills. But at the same time, that wasn't what made him suitable for leadership. It was the heart that he had. I fully believe that humans, not just Christians, but really no humans were meant to be celebrities. Um, No one can handle that kind of pressure. Um, Christians, non-Christians, no one can handle the pressure of millions of people watching your every movement. I do not believe that we were created to be celebrities. It's just too much. We see it time and time again. People just melt down in the face of just that intense scrutiny. Not that I don't want celebrities to be believers. I would love anyone who would we would consider a celebrity to become a believer, but not so that they can then go and be a celebrity, but so that they can know Jesus, right? The righteousness that we should see comes with no accolades. It comes with no delusions of grandeur, but it's a softened and humbled heart. The accolades, the grandeur, go to God, the one who is behind it. For us, we should seek out to have an inner person, an inner seat of who we are, our volition, uh, the most deep part of ourselves, the most honest part of ourselves to be committed to serving the Lord. And whether people see that or not in every moment really is none of our concern. That's really the Lord's business. I certainly hope that all of us, even with a uh, focusing on the inner heart would have a, an impact on those around us and that they would know there's something unique and different about us because of the work of the Spirit through us. But ultimately, we have to know that what God is looking for is a heart that is committed to Him. And if people see that through our genuine actions, then all glory to God for that. As long as we are seeking, though, our own status or to be seen as righteous, to be seen as obedient, to be seen as Uh, a great Christ follower, we are just setting ourselves up for failure because ultimately that leads to, well, if I want people to think the best of me, I better hide what's wrong with me. I better not let people see this because that's going to hurt my image. As human beings, we cannot keep a perfect image because we are still sinners. Even when we're in Christ, we still struggle with sin, even though we have been renewed and transformed. So what I hope for for us as we study the life of David, and as we see this initially, that we would change our mind about what is important, what is valuable, to change our mind of what it means to be a true follower of Christ, and that it has nothing to do with what people see us doing, but it has a lot to do with what's going on inside of us, what our motivations are, who God is to us. And remembering, of course, the accolades, the grandeur, they are not for us, but instead... They are all meant to go to God.